Welcome to Taneo Insights, a podcast that provides in-depth analysis on the issues that matter most to CEOs and their businesses. I'm your host, Kevin Kajawara, co-president of Taneo's political risk advisory business. Let's get started. Sally Sussman is with me today. She is the executive vice president and chief corporate affairs officer of Pfizer. Sally also serves as vice chair of the Pfizer Foundation and co-chair of Pfizer's political action committee. In her role, she oversees the company's communications, corporate responsibility, global policy, government relations, investor relations, and patient advocacy, or as Pfizer CEO Albert Borla put it more succinctly when introducing Sally to President Biden, she is Pfizer's Secretary of State. Sally is on the board of UL Solutions and is co-chair of the International Rescue Committee. Before joining Pfizer in 2007, she was with Estee Lauder and American Express and spent some eight years in government, much of that time focused on international trade. And in 2019, she received the Matrix Award from New York Women in Communications. I mention this because it's one award, Sally, you write about that you actually coveted the validation of one's peers. And now she is also a Wall Street Journal bestselling author with Breaking Through, Communicating to Open Minds, Move Hearts, and Change the World. There's a stack of them right behind her, in fact, out now from Harvard Business Review Press. In its review of the book, Forbes called Sally one of the most distinguished corporate communications experts in the world and praised its effectiveness as a business book because it's a memoir. And so, Sally, thank you so much for, for being here with me today. Uh, it's a real, real, real pleasure to have you on. And, and maybe we could just start right there, actually. I'm just sort of curious, you know, at this stage in, in, in your career, why now? Why did you choose to write this book now? And, and, you know, on that point about it being a memoir as much as a business book, why did you take the approach that, uh, that you took? Well, thank you, Kevin. It's great to be with you again and uh, delighted to be part of this conversation. I felt I had to write this book. It was burning within me to write it. Um, I spent my entire career, uh, which you kindly outlined, um, almost 40 years studying leadership. And I've had the pleasure to work for nine CEOs and cabinet secretaries and senators. And they're all very smart and hardworking and nobody just stumbles into those offices. But what I observed was that those that were game changers, the ones that you know, really broke out, were the ones that did not mistake communications for a soft skill, but rather saw it as a rock hard competency and devoted themselves to it. So over the decades, I'd been collecting thoughts, notes, um, ideas about this, the, the beliefs that drive my work. And during the pandemic, when it was my job to roll out Pfizer's vaccine, they came to the fore. And so um, sometimes people say, how long did it take you to write the book? I like to say about 40 years in the making, but really pen to paper happened uh, during the pandemic when the heat of the crisis really crystallized things I'd been thinking about for decades. So let's unpack that a little bit, because one could um, one could argue that the subtitle of the book is actually pretty expansive and quite grandiose, especially that part about changing the world. But it's worth noting that you really bookend the book. The book starts and ends with the with the pandemic. Um, and, you know, I think it's for the audience's sake, it's important to keep in mind who you represent here, Pfizer. So 
just like every other company and every other employer in the world, you were going through the fear and crisis as, that, as the pandemic unfolded and we were all sent home and everybody went into lockdown. But then you had this added responsibility and added opportunity that came with the development of the vaccine and getting it prepared. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about, um, you know, going back to those times and, and the sequence of, uh, of, of events, um, because they are so informative to how you bookend this book and, and, and talk a little bit about the, the pandemic for Pfizer and you. Sure, sure. So let's travel back, having in our minds, to March of 2020. Um, I was here in New York City, and I saw the, the shelves thinning out in the, in the stores. I, I heard the thrum of refrigerator trucks that were doubling as makeshift morgues. Yeah. And uh, my boss, Pfizer CEO Albert Borla, at that time flew to Greece to give an address at a conference. And by the time he landed there, the conference had shut down. Things were just locking down one after another. On Albert's flight back to New York, he wrote on a, a small piece of paper, he made a little note um, that said, we needed to do three things at Pfizer. First, take care of our 85,000 employees around the world. Because for large companies, for all companies really, you know, employee wellness and making sure everyone was okay and able to function was very important. Second, that we needed to ensure the steady stream of medicine around the world because terrible illnesses like cancer and Alzheimer's didn't take a break during the pandemic. And third, that we would come forward with a vaccine by the end of the year. And that, when I heard that, I thought, oh no, you know, this is crazy. I'm in the middle of a pandemic and my CEO has committed to something that's just impossible. Well, we've held on to that little note that Albert wrote. It's part of our uh, legacy and history here at the company because, um, as you know, we did achieve that. And how we did it was really, Albert then looked around at his executives to put someone in charge of this enormous project, and he appointed himself. And that's when I thought, well, maybe, you know, just maybe we are going to do this. And we began to work as a company very, very differently taking a linear process that can last over a decade and crushing it by doing everything at once. So some of the later stage work, like securing the raw materials, reconfiguring the manufacturing lines, things you would normally only do after proof of concept, we started right away. So it was an extraordinary experience for me to, to be in the room where that happened. And it also created in me the desire to be as bold as Albert and to have my own grand ambition to change the reputation of Pfizer and hopefully Big Pharma in this time of the pandemic. Um, I came to Pfizer 16 years ago from companies with sterling reputations because I couldn't believe that companies that make life-saving medicine had such lousy reputations. And I thought I would fix that pretty quickly. I beat my head against a wall for nearly 10 years, uh, making little, if any, progress. But when the pandemic hit, I knew if I also did things differently, so put some previously closely held intellectual property up on the website, radical transparency, embedded media into the company during this you know, critical and vulnerable time, took all kinds of reputational risk because I figured if we failed, if Pfizer failed, 
the world would have much bigger problems than a bad news day for my company. But if we succeeded, that this narrative would be the storyline to explain to the world what it is companies like Pfizer do. I'll, I'll wrap this part by just saying, for the last 10 years, sorry, for the last two years, Pfizer has been in the top 10 global brand by Fortune magazine. Time magazine just released their top companies. We were number six. So the end result was a scientific revolution of mRNA technology, uh, vaccine brought forward by eight months, but also a reputational transformation that I believe were codependent. So it's a, um, th this is a really interesting part uh, uh, of the book, actually. So I want to dig into it perhaps a, a little bit more because, um, you know, it's, it, it's interesting, of course, you, you like everybody else, were, were scrambling um, to look after your employees and, and manage your supply chain. Like you say, all of the, all of the other medicines that, uh, not the to-be-developed ones, but the ones that were, were, were necessary to, to get to patients um, and, and to medical centers and the like. Um, at what juncture did you say to yourself, you know, after, like you say, after beating your head against the wall for the last 10 years, that this was as much of an opportunity um, as anything else for not just Pfizer, the company, but for this industry, um, uh, big, big pharma. And I guess part of that question is, and you kind of posed it rhetorically, but I'm wondering if you have an answer to this, which is why this industry that is so integral to people's health and to frankly extending and saving people's lives and making them more comfortable, et cetera, et cetera, why it's so, why it was so reviled. Yeah, well, let me try to break that down a little bit. I have a very good friend who works in our mutual field who was instrumental in the rebuild of New York City after 9-11. And at the start of the pandemic, he called me and he said, you know, Sally, the only thing harder than being at the center of a crisis is to be on the sidelines of a crisis. And I knew instantly, Kevin, what he meant. He meant that when you find yourself in an unexpected you know, crisis, nobody thought a few years ago that we'd be in the middle of a once a century global pandemic, you find yourself in a crisis with an opportunity to help, your energy level picks up, your mind opens up, you are testing yourself and your team in all kinds of different ways. And it was almost, it just snowballed. You know, there wasn't sort of a moment when I had this idea, but it was a series of ideas. What if we said we would collaborate uh, with others across the industry instead of compete? What if we made our scientists widely available? So it was kind of as if one good idea compounded upon another until I was finding myself taking big reputational risks that I had never even contemplated before. So that was you know, kind of that piece. In terms of why does the industry have such a struggle with their reputation. It, you know, I've sat in focus groups um, where I've heard people say, this industry has a cure for diabetes, but they just don't put it forward because insulin is so profitable. When I heard that, literally a tear fell from my eye because I had no idea before I joined the sector, the depth of the cynicism, the, the depth of the hurt and pain that people have. Um, you know, I, I guess I'd like to make two points. Um, the first one is that we have to solve this problem. Um, this 
problem in the United States of the affordability of health care um, must be solved. You know, we can't exist. Democracy will not hold in a system where wealthy people have a different opportunity to care for their families than middle class or, or struggling people, where your health care should not depend on your last name or your zip code. Um, so we have to solve this problem. But my second point is we have to solve it across the ecosystem. It is not simply the pharmaceuticals. If I wish it were, because then it would be more easily fixed. It's pharmacies, pharmacy benefit managers, insurance, hospital, doctors. And what I would love to see is for there to be some kind of a convening um, across the sector in a way where we can get our hands around this problem uh, because it's just too important. So where do you think then, given the, given the opportunity that, that presented itself and the hard work that you and probably others in the industry uh, did during this period, um, you know, kind of how successful that has been. On the one hand, you make the point of where Pfizer now ranks in the sort of fortune listings. On the other hand, of course, it's notable on September 27th, uh, second Republican uh, presidential debate occurred. And when they focused on health care, it was, of course, remarkable how many times big pharma was was brought up and not in a good way, quite frankly. So how how do you think the battle is now is progressing. Yep. I'm with you. Um, my The thing that keeps me up at night right now is how do I hold on to this precious asset of some reputational lift and some greater trust? Um, and, you know, it seems memories are short uh, when it comes to what the industry did not so long ago to help bring us out of the pandemic. And what my research shows, Kevin, is that there is a small percentage of people, say, 15, 20% of the population that love the industry, that have had a personal experience that maybe prolonged their own lives or saved the life of their children, or they're scientists, or they really believe in the model. There's another 20% on the other end of the spectrum that are convinced of a conspiracy theory, that they believe that companies like mine create viruses and put them out into the universe to make more money. I mean, really some very ludicrous um, allegations. Um, those people are very hard to reach. They don't um, listen in on informed programs like this one. Um, sometimes they don't even get their medical advice from doctors. But what's fascinating is this 60% in the middle who rarely think about the healthcare system. In fact, they don't want to think about it. Uh, they want to go about their lives. They want to you know, see their children get educated. They want to see the economy be successful. And so what is my goal and my strategy is to reach those people with outcomes that matter to them. So that will be, you know, good vaccines against the flu season. That will be new, uh, new medicines to fight cancer. Um, and I think the industry has to continue to find purpose with the average person. During the pandemic, we shared purpose with the average person. You know, people at dinner tables were talking about, should I get a vaccine? Should I wear a mask? Everybody was in on the conversation. Now people have gone back to their lives and they're usually not in on the conversation until they have a problem. So that's kind of how I think about it. Yeah, I mean, just anecdotally, you know, as I think about it, um, my late father, 
who was on dialysis for very many years. Um, and uh, the, the, the ready supply of those materials is what kept him alive. And, um, you know, during the pandemic period when you couldn't find toilet paper in those early, uh, you know, early weeks and early months on, on the shelves, you know, that, that supply was kept coming um, and was unbroken. And it was really quite a, a, extraordinary um, uh, how that- We're how very that proud of that. that. I, I mean, yeah. very proud of the work of our manufacturing and supply chain colleagues. As you say, you know, you couldn't buy a car or refrigerator to save your life but that medicine stood up to the test of the supply chain challenge. And so, you know, when you think, when you then get to sort of the end of the, uh, of, of the story, the successful deployment of the, um, uh, of the vaccine and whatnot, it seems like, you know, you made this point that Albert Boyla took personal responsibility for this and presumably others in the ELT and C-suite, you know, took that, took that charge with their teams and so on and so forth. And it, and, and it really sounds like in the book that there was an esprit de corps uh, within the entire business from the executives to uh, the scientific elements of the, of the company to, this, to, the, uh, to the manufacturing and production lines and a very, a group that you talk about specifically that is generally unheralded in all of this, which is the human trial participant. Um, as well, but that at the end there must have been an extraordinary sense of accomplishment, and that you had changed the world. Yes, um, you know I know I took a bit of a gamble with saying change the world as part of the, the the subtext of my book, and you know you're not the first person to tell me what maybe that was a stretch, but I believe it because um, you can change the world, and and there are few but precious times when that does happen, and. We certainly saw it during the pandemic, and you make a great point about the clinical trial volunteers. Uh, these are people you know, who often labored in complete obscurity. How, how often do we think of, about these, these wonderful people who raise their hand and volunteer their bodies you know, without compensation or reward uh, to try to advance science? It was interesting because um, in the time when we were recruiting the trial, and it recruited super fast, I mean, like unprecedented speed. Um, one of the trial participants wrote an article, an opinion piece in the New York Times about her experience. She said, I am patient 1133, Molly Jung Fast wrote this piece. And I, I shared it around Pfizer as it, because she was a hero. And, you know, never before do, would people, you know, with pride speak about this, what they did. It was almost like we were at war and they were growing a victory garden by joining in uh, to the clinical trials. And we took out a full page ad to thank clinical trial participants. So, you know, you make a good point, um, building on my idea that it was an all in moment for the industry. In, in general, why do people do that? Um, how do you find them? Considering to your point that they're, I mean, I, I understand the, the, the war analogy that you make in this particular case, but in, in, in other, in other instances, um, mm -hmm. considering that these participants, like you say, are uncompensated and the like, I mean, how do you find these extraordinary people? Well, we have a, a wonderful clinical trials team here, and they work hard to make the information available. Um, you know, it's available on websites, often at hospitals or doctor's offices and are on our own. 
we work hard to ensure that our trials are really diverse, um, you know, across all kinds of diversity, gender, age, race, because you want to make sure that your results speak to the broad population. So you, we advertise in appropriate venues. Um, you know, it's a big job uh, to try to bring to the public um, a sense of pride. And we also express a lot of gratitude to our volunteers. You know, thank you letters, um, you know, just letting them feel a part of something that's extremely purposeful and extremely exciting. So you brought up another interesting um, element that you did differently uh, in this case um, than in the rolling out of other, uh, other products. Um, and that is that you felt it necessary, knowing that there was going to be, there's always going to be this element of vaccine hesitancy out there. Plus you had uh, even those who are perhaps more acceptant who still thought, wow, this is really fast without kind of fully understanding how much work had been done over the years on mRNA leading up to this moment so it was ready to go. Um, and then of course the politicized environment. But you realized you had other assets to bring to the table other than what would typically be brought to sort of market for lack of a better term, uh, a, new, a new product. You went deeper into your, beyond your executive team and beyond communications to people in the scientific elements of the, of the company. I think you made a, a point that knowing that children were going to have to be involved in the vaccination here, that one of your chief scientists is a pediatrician by background and so was a phenomenal voice to talk to parents in a, in, in a sense. But talk about how you put all of that together given that you were in this kind of, it, it was a make or break kind of a moment in a sense. Yeah, there were uh, multiple dimensions to it. And you call out a very important one, uh, which is that we took our role in communicating uh, differently than we would have in the past. Um, you know, we, I wasn't out there having our people say Pfizer is the best, um, rather, we became educators in chief uh, across you know, television stations, um, getting out there with Albert Borla as a new CEO uh, to introduce himself and the technology and the science. Like you say, um, I put a lot of my scientists on television. We did have a wonderful pediatric scientist who, who spoke warmly uh, to parents so that they could understand and explain things again and again and again. Um, it was a funny day for me when our chief scientist was on one of the morning shows. And um, as we're scrambling to get ready, I had to ask him to, you know, make his bed and comb his hair uh, because these are not people um, who are, you know, media savvy, um, but they are brilliant people and they are authentic, caring people. But when it came to actually rolling out the vaccine itself, um, I made some mistakes and I learned some lessons. Um, I thought I would win the day based on having data and experts. Um, so I had wonderful clinical trial data and I had real world evidence coming in from Israel and other places that were giving us some controlled uh, feedback. And in addition to my scientists, we were talking with public health officials around the world on a regular basis. But that only got so far. Um, there's, you know, getting back to that middle ground of people who, you know, aren't necessarily following 
all the detail. And what I learned was two things. First, good old-fashioned storytelling matters. That when um, a grandma at the senior center can say to the other grandmas, I got to see my grandson because I'm vaccinated. You know, that was meaningful. Or when students were in their chat rooms and saying, I got to get out of the house. I'm going back to campus. I got vaccinated. Um, you know, there were these stories and the impactful storytellers uh, at the end of the day were not the celebrities and government officials and rock stars and sports heroes, but they were the, the teacher, the preacher, the neighbor lady, the, the son, the daughter. And these conversations were happening and I had to sort of let them unfold, but also try to amplify them in authentic ways. So, you know, never before did people take to their social media boasting about their vaccine, um, you know, or write to the New York Times about being in a clinical trial. So these were great learnings for me um, and things I, I, I still take forward. Now, I want to pivot here, but I, I've got to, uh, I got to go back and ask you one thing that you go back to what we were talking about with regards to Pfizer and the industry's reputation. And you make a passing reference in the book, and it just really struck me, which is um, the series of commercials that we see on TV all the time for pharmaceutical products, and everybody's happy and frolicking around and so on and so forth, while at the same time, there's this voiceover talking about all the horrible things that might happen to you um, from dry mouth to death, and they're sort of equally, you know, bad. Um, and that that had actually had, to some degree, a negative um, impact on the reputation of the industry. I'm just kind of wondering, like, where do those things come from? And why, I mean, they're almost, they are literally now almost indistinguishable in some cases from the Saturday Night Live takeoffs on, um, you know, on them in, in, in a sense. Um, mm -hmm. But what's the genesis of, of, of that? Well, it, so the United States is one of only three countries in the world that allows um, for direct-to-consumer advertising of medical products. And I wasn't in the industry or at Pfizer when this was, you know, became allowed through, I think, some kind of a piece of legislation that, that made it possible. And there was, and to some extent still is, a belief that, you know, the industry should have its First Amendment rights, that it should be able to take information to people, and that in some cases, these ads do raise disease awareness, you know, which someone can say, oh, you know, I have this issue. And of course, ultimately, they need to go to a doctor because you can't self-prescribe. So even though we go direct to consumer, it is still mediated through a healthcare official, which is good. Personally, and this is a, a Sally Sussman point of view, um, not necessarily speaking for my company or my industry, but I think many of these ads are reputation destroying. Um, they can make our research and our finely tested products seem like commodities. Um, it can seem like you know we're more interested in marketing than, than in medicine. Um, and of course that's not true. Um, and so you know we are trying to make sure that the advertising that we do um, adds value, that it doesn't just, um, you know, as you described it, be cliched. And it was interesting during the pandemic because um, we had stopped our product advertising. It, it wouldn't have been appropriate to be sort of out there hustling 
you know, for your medicine when doctor's offices are closed and hospitals were overwhelmed. So we had an inventory of uh, purchased advertising time and I used it to create a campaign called Science Will Win. And um, it was full of hope and enthusiasm. And it wasn't that Pfizer would win, but that science would win. And the hero in it were scientists in and outside of Pfizer who were leaning into the crisis. So sorry for the long answer, but you, you pushed a, a button of mine on this topic. And I agree that much of what we see today is not helpful, but I remain hopeful that there is a really great avenue uh, for you know, better communications um, direct to consumer. So I want to I pivot here a little bit because as you know, Taneo is a firm that's highly focused on corporate communications and the like. And there's a lot of world-class um, practitioners here. So I think a lot, and, and, and therefore a lot of our audience um, uh, is within that realm as well. So I think this is where it's going to be very interesting because you sort of make a point in the book, you know, about the pandemic specifically, but I think there's a, there's a bigger issue here, which is that pandemic was such a big deal. It's so unprecedented in a sense. And part of me thinking like, this is, this is your Super Bowl in a way. I mean, not that you would ever wish something so horrible to happen, but at the end of the day, in some ways, this is why you are in the business to be able to, to, um, to handle these types of challenges uh, and deliver your company, your employees and your colleagues and your product on the other side. And so you, you make, um, this assertion that on the one hand, it took every ounce of experience that you had brought to the table, the 40 years that you were just talking about at the beginning, but at the same time, the, the, the note, the, the playbook had to be torn up. Um, and, you know, was that a, I know you've got a, a pretty sizable team of people you're very, very close with, and you're close to the rest of the C-suite and Albert Borla in particular, but was this a, how lonely was this? Or talk, talk a little bit about how you employed those years of experience to something so um, sui generis. Uh, in Absolutely. And thank you for mentioning um, the wonderful corporate communicators at Taneo. I'm really honored to, to be able to speak to them. And I know I'm talking to a very savvy, very experienced, um, you know, high quality group of people. So uh, I, I appreciate very much uh, this opportunity. So, you know, I did, need a new playbook um, and that is sort of how and why my thoughts crystallized into these 10 chapters each one sounds super easy but but plays hard and there was something positive for me and something negative in what i was experienced the positive was um being locked down like everyone else at home um i had a quality of time to think about how we do these things how do we open minds? How do we move hearts? Um, I started a ritual during the pandemic of getting up early and taking a long walk. And I, I'm trying to hang on to that. Also during the pandemic, um, you know, I didn't do things, frivolous things. I didn't waste my time. I didn't just go to some party because somebody invited me. Um, and to this day, I, I try to be very intentional about the things that I agree to spend my time on. I am delighted to speak to Taneo. It's an honor for me. Um, but having that quality of time, you know, sort of supercharged my thinking and my planning. But it also did leave me lonely um, alongside many other people. And one of the great joys of corporate communications is that people come from all kinds of backgrounds. There's journalists, politicians, uh, writers, 
in my case, sometimes uh, people that, you know, doctors in my team. And what I enjoy most about my work is when we have something either super challenging or super exciting, get everybody in the room, order a pizza, and let's, you know, let's hash out a plan. But I couldn't do that during the pandemic. And I thought, how can I continue to apprentice the people on my team and work with them in this way? And so I created the book as sort of a, a handbook or a, a toolbox for corporate communicators of everything that I believed. And, and knowing that I learned my trade by working for great people before me um, and being in rooms where it happened is the part of the idea of the book was to create that apprenticeship and to build that room as best I could. You know, I've um, I've encouraged my uh, my firm to uh, to actually buy a bunch of copies of this book and distribute it to sort of the young uh, newer practitioners here. You know, I'm and, and and I'm as you know kind of adjacent to all of this. I I run the political risk business here, but I watch all of this every single day. And one of the things that I thought was so effective about the book um, is that you are very candid about mistakes that you have made um, along the way, which had to be pretty painful. There's two episodes in particular that stood out to me. One was when you were quite young, you were working, I believe, in a congressman or senator's office, um, and you divulged some closely held information about them rerunning for office. And, you know, and, and we all understand that, that impulse. You are possessing really important information. That means I'm in the room. I need to, you know, I need to demonstrate that to a certain degree. And yet it was very damaging. And it's a lesson that you come back to a number of times in, in, in the book. And another one was um, a Wall Street Journal uh, interview that you did um, where they decided to focus on your shoe issue and your, your, um, and, 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 um, but you were, you know, it was embarrassing, um, but you also saw that your CEO Leonard Lauder at that time, you know, uh, saw through the humanity of it of it all in a sense. But you know, th th this points to something you and I talked about just just the other day, and you you were talking Matt now about the benefit of time that you had to think through things during the pandemic. Pandemic is now over. Um, but the collateral kind of impact of that is still being felt throughout corporate America, and I suspect at Pfizer as well. And one of those things is getting everybody back together, getting people back in the office. Younger practitioners in all of these crafts are apprentices in a, in a way, and they learn at the elbow of people who've got 40 years of experience and, and, and the like. How are you feeling now about that? about that balance. It sounded like in the book you were never really very uh, positive on work from home prior to the pandemic. Um, where do you fall out on that now? Sure. And thank you very much, Kevin, for recommending uh, my book to your, to your colleagues. Um, that's super helpful to me. And um, the two stories that you referenced um, were very, very embarrassing mistakes that I made. Um, one really early in my career when, as you say, I, I divulged a confidence and paid a heavy price for it, uh, but I learned to never do that again. And I now, you know, take great pride in when people say to me, you know, I'd like to share something with you in confidence. That, that means a lot and I hold it dear. 
or the other story you referenced, because I know not everyone listening has read the book, um, that story was where I wound up on the front page of the Wall Street Journal um, in an embarrassing story about women's footwear fashion, which was not how I saw myself or wanted to be talked about, but I had failed to prepare and I had failed to uh, do the due diligence with these reporters that I would have done for anybody else. I hadn't done it for myself. So I share these stories in the spirit of, they didn't kill me, they didn't break me. Um, I, I hope they made me more resilient and I hope that sharing stories of my mistakes um, assures people that you can make a mistake and live to fight another day. And so one of the things I do now, and you might want to try it at Taneo, is um, every so often I have something called open mic night. And I take a conference room and just put a, a single stand with a microphone, try to create the look of a comedy club or something. And we get up, and I usually go first, and share a recent mistake, something I've done lately that was a goof. And then the next person will follow me and say what they did. And what we soon becomes clear is that we all make mistakes. We all feel ashamed of our mistakes. Um, and if you can laugh at them or laugh about them, you know, you're sort of already on the road to recovery of putting it into perspective, learning from it, and sort of sharing our humanity. And yes, I do like to be in the office. Um, I recognize all the great things that happened in the flexible and hybrid work arrangements. Um, we still have flexibility here at Pfizer, but we are increasingly asking colleagues to be in about three days a week, and, and I like it. And I'm grateful for it, and I try to tell my team, we earn this flexibility by not taking advantage of it and really coming into the office. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it, it's one of the, the takeaway from those kind of examples that you give in there. Uh, I think for a lot of young people, they recognize, frankly, the fallibility of their of their superiors, um, but think that the the superiors think that they are infallible. Um, and this is a recognition that you know you get to the position you do not through a, you know just a linear path. There's a lot that goes on. Uh, not for me, of course, I was perfect, but you know, um, but for <laughs> most. Um, and and so you know, it, but actually, it also. Uh, there's another phenomenal tale in the book. I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about that because it's one of, I think, my favorite parts of the book. You reference the movie, The Intern, with Robert De Niro and uh, Anne Hathaway, where Anne Hathaway is the CEO of a, of a company and, and, and she hires Robert De Niro, much older man, as, as an intern. And you were inspired by that movie and did essentially the same thing. Um, with a, a communications legend named Paul Critchlow. And, you know, talk a little bit about why you did that and how it played out within, within Pfizer. Happy to. So first of all, I believe that each of us has the ability to be, uh, to have creative inspiration. I don't think creativity is sort of a God-given thing. And in fact, uh, I always recommend the book, The Creative Habit by Twyla Tharp, who is a dancer and choreographer. And she talks about scratching. And what scratching means is that you live your life um, in certain patterns. And if you kind of break out of those patterns and scratch into something different, it will stimulate your creativity. So if you read nonfiction, try sci-fi. If you like 
you know, rom-com movies, try a documentary. And just by doing things differently, you can get fresh ideas. So the story you reference um, went back to a business flight I was on, coming back from some work, I was tired and I didn't feel like reading or working. So uncharacteristically for me, I rolled up a movie um, on, on my Delta flight and I watched The Intern. And just as you describe, um, Anne Hathaway plays a business lady who, you know, she's struggling, she's lonely, she's trying to run her business, and she doesn't really have anyone she can talk to. And Robert, um, I'm sorry, it is a- uh, De Niro. Thank you. Bob De Niro um, plays a recently retired guy who's feeling lonely and comes back to work. And of course, they connect deeply and help each other. And, um, you know, everybody's happy at the end. So I'm watching this movie, I'm having a glass of wine, and all I can think is, I want that too. I want what Anne Hathaway had. And so when I came back to work the next day, I talked to our head of HR and I said, I think I'd like to try to hire a, a senior intern this summer. And I think he looked at me like I was nuts, but wasn't worth the argument. He said, you know, go for it. And I did reach out to Paul Critchlow, um, who is someone who is a friend and who I admired as he had been head of corporate comms for Merrill Lynch and ultimately had retired as vice chairman of Bank of America. And I kind of knew he wasn't all that enamored with his recent retirement either. Uh, I took him to lunch and, you know, after we digested our, our meal, I said, hey, you know, have you heard of the movie The Intern? And he says, nope. So I had to explain the premise. And then I said, so I'm wondering if you would consider being my intern. And he tapped his ear and I thought he's adjusting his hearing aid because he, he thinks he didn't understand my question. Um, he, I explained again the, the, the question. Uh, he told me he had to ask his wife. He went home, came back to me the next day and said, yes, he would do it. And I said, well, listen, I'll, I need to give you a consulting contract because you're such a senior guy. And he said, well, what do the other interns make? $18.25 an hour. Paul said, I'll take it. And then I said, okay, but let me give you an office because you know you need some privacy. He asked me, where do the other interns sit? In the bullpen, I replied. He, jo he joined them in the bullpen and he became very much like Robert De Niro, you know, a, a important figure for us and somebody who was creating intergenerational learning and, and for me provided that companionship I wanted in the office. But the amazing part of this story is um, it went a little viral and Fast Company magazine uh, ended up putting our senior intern on the cover of their magazine. I had been trying to get Pfizer into Fast Company magazine for years, you know, because we were an innovative science company. But it wasn't until you know, we tried this experiment. Uh, we were invited to the main stage at South by Southwest to tell our story. So I appreciate you giving me the chance to share this because, you know, sometimes the best ideas are these simple, um, you know, rooted in curiosity and a willingness to do something different um, and to, to scratch around until you find something fun to pursue. And it seemed like, 
the the other interns and the young people in the in the firm really embraced him and and took and took him on as as one of their own and part of the gang um but also learned you know he fulfilled the reason he was there they learned a lot uh from him but and i know you and i have talked about this a little bit in the past but um I understand the reasons why it's not really scalable or easily replicable, but, but what did you take away from that that was scalable and replicable in how you are bringing young people up in their, in their careers in the firm? Mm -hmm. Well, I, mean, I think one thing that you know, was important um, was to realize that there is a lot of wisdom um, in senior folks in our company and, and around us. You know, there's, there is a real age bias that exists uh, deeply in our society and I think rages in corporate America. Um, and so just shining that light on, you know, the value of wisdom and experience, and it is something that I respect and honor, uh, was a big lesson. But also um, to take a risk. I mean, look, I'm busy, you're busy, everybody's busy. I didn't need to design a new program, you know, to try to bring in a senior intern, but the dividends were beyond my expectations in terms of, you know, again, the learning, the cross-generational, the energy, and then ultimately um, the coverage of it, which was fantastic. So, you know, that's why it's, it's kind of legendary around here, my senior intern. Yeah. So I was very gratified to see you employ a quote in the book that um, I actually use a lot in my speeches um, and relevant to, to, to where, I'm, where my day-to-day -day work is. But um, you quote uh, General Eisenhower uh, and his, you know, sort of famous line that, you know, no plan basically survives first contact with the enemy. Plans, when the first bullet fl fl flies, plans are worthless, but planning was was everything and can you talk a little bit about your process on that front what like one question i have is is for all the work that you put in uh going into into vaccine deployment you know were you prepared to deal with a situation where let's just say after all of the work all of the investment all the yeoman's labor that everybody had done it was either ineffective or even worse if it had injured somebody along uh, along the way you know how much how much scenario planning do you Pfizer, but you also within your uh, your mandate uh, over there go through um, as you prepare for the you know what's coming? Well, um, I tend to be a worrier by nature. Um, I think a lot of corporate affairs people are worriers by nature. Um, you know, we're always trying to mitigate the risk um, to you know, ensure that harm isn't done. Um, and I do try to scenario plan uh, as best I can, but in all candor, we did not have a plan B um, in the development of our vaccine. We put all our chips on the table. Um, our company put $2 billion at risk. We took no government money. Um, you know, we, we had to decide which pathways to take. We went with mRNA technology. Um, we, we did several, we, there were several junctures like that where there really was no looking back. But that's extraordinary. Um, what's, what's much more common in our work are decisions um, that you know, can have multiple outcomes. 
And it is our job as corporate communicators to try to think through those multiple outcomes. And, um, you know, I, I, as you say, I, I like to um, highlight my own mistakes and not those of others, but I do study the, the space. And like, if you think about, for example, the, the spill of British, Petro British Petroleum and the failure to have made a relief well, you know, I'm not an expert at this and I wasn't in the room, but I always often thought, you know, were the corporate affairs people brought in not at the crisis, but before the crisis, when decisions were made that maybe set some of, of those um, tragedies in motion. So what I believe is so exciting about our work and what I take really seriously in my job is trying to be a voice um, ahead of a problem to say, you know, I know we'd love to do this, but have we thought about what might happen? And when you look at some of the most vexing corporate affairs issues of late, what happened with Disney in Florida, what happened with AB InBev, um, with their transgender influencer, part of what I believe was compounding for these companies was having to change course, you know, and, and the changing of course can, can really mean that you leave both sides of an issue angry with you. And so I feel it's really important to ask the difficult questions up front and to think about what are the 10 ways in which this can go wrong. Um, I don't always get it right. Um, nobody will always get it right. But that's where our jobs demand a tremendous amount of courage. Yeah, it's, it occurs to me that, you know, once big decisions are made, everybody from boards and CEOs on down are very vested in it. So when you have when you have to test those assumptions, are, is the operating environment we're going to be in going forward consistent with the assumptions that were made that make, you know, got us to the decision to open that plant, open that market, build, you know, make that investment uh, and, and, and the like. And that's why I asked this kind of question about scenario planning, but also, you know, I think it's pretty clear we're in an environment where these sort of exogenous, fat tail risks or, you know, black swan events, whatever you want to call them, are happening with greater frequency than was statistically the case um, in, in the past. And how that's going to, you know, how that's going to manifest itself in any particular company um, is really challenging. One, you know, one scenario that I keep coming back to time and time again was last year in 2022, when, you know, the U.S. administration and the intelligence community were very clear to corporate America about, Russia invading Ukraine. And yet in February of 2022, a lot of corporate America was caught by surprise um, by that, why that why that was. And and, you know, um, I know your you know, Pfizer made very clear uh, decision on that um, on that front. But also, again, one where one can given the life saving nature of what you do in many cases, you can you can take it's, it's not a it's not a black and white argument. Yeah. Well, one thing that's probably good for you is um, one thing that's always in short supply is political intelligence. Um, so, you know, what you do is, is crucial for companies like mine. Um, and the situation in Russia, Ukraine, I opened the book with a story of, you know, our need to respond. Um, we're in a business that is a humanitarian product, medicine. And so we are traditionally exempt um, you know, from the the need to withdraw or the um, sanctions that are are put out for companies that 
you know, are, are participating, we, we felt we needed to stay. A kid with cancer in Russia is a kid with cancer and needs his medicine. Um, but doing that and doing nothing else um, felt insufficient. It felt like business as usual. And so um, over the course of a weekend, the executive committee here decided, yes, we'll stay in, but we will donate our proceeds uh, from Russia to Ukraine for the relief effort. And it was a really interesting exercise, Kevin, because it reminded me um, that life is rarely black or white, yes or no. Um, and sometimes our world doesn't tolerate nuanced answers very well, but you can nuance your answer and you can, you know, um, put a patina on something that, it, that speaks to your values and, and speaks to what you believe in. So we made this decision, and then importantly, we went out and talked about it. Um, because if you don't explain yourself in this world, people will not understand you. I want to spend the last few minutes of our conversation here. You know, as I said earlier, Taneo specializes in, in communications, but, but it really is devoted to the CEO uh, in, in, in many ways. And you write early in the book, that nothing is a greater symbol of a company's character than its chief executive. Um, and, and you were blessed to have worked with some of the true icons of the position, right? You talked about Leonard Lauder a lot. You talk a lot about Ken Chenault uh, of American Express and, of course, uh, now Albert Borla. Um, but talk about that a little bit because, you know, as you prepare these people and work with these people to, to be that representative face be that character um, of, of the company. You know, you, you go to great pains in the book to talk about authenticity and how that is communicated and your, you know, your avoidance of corporate speak and, you know, owning mistakes. Um, you know, the, the, there are plenty of examples in that, but the, the BP one in particular is just sort of cringy uh, that, you, that you talked about. Um, you know, uh, and, and that credibility is built over time when you're not in crisis, um, in a sense. Talk about how you really position CEO in general. Well, yeah. yeah, I mean, I know you guys work with a lot of great CEOs, and it's an honor and a privilege and a hell of a lot of fun to um, advise, be, have the, the privilege uh, to advise CEOs. And um, as I said at the top of your show, you know, I've had the, the opportunity to work for nine um, and I, I do talk a lot about Leonard Lauder because from Leonard, you know, I learned um, about the power of being gracious and that it's not just a nice to have, it can be a real a strategic advantage, a, a business asset to be gracious. And um, with Ken, Ken Chenault, uh, the former chairman and CEO of American Express, um, I have a whole section in the book on pitch. And, and I don't mean a, a cold call pitch. I, I don't mean an elevator pitch. I mean um, a quality, a quality of sound um, that he achieved beautifully in the days following 9-11 uh, when he as a new CEO had to really um, lead us forward with optimism. You know, and um, I don't think I've worked for any CEO that I'm closer to or have more admiration for uh, than Albert Borla who was also a new CEO at the time of the pandemic and who um, led us in a very special way. And I think anyone who knows Albert knows he's Greek, he is very, very Greek. And um, he often gives us 
uh, Greek philosophy, uh, Greek philosophy, and my favorite one of his is when he uh, paraphrases Aristotle and says, "Our problem is not that we aim high and miss. Our problem is that we aim low and hit." So I've learned a great deal from working with these CEOs, but I hope what I've given them um, is my best advice and courageous answers that speak to my loyalty to the enterprise. And it's not my loyalty to the individuals. I, I, ho I hope they know that I am loyal to them, but that if I believe they need to hear something because it's right for my company, they may not agree with me, they may not like to hear it, but for folks in our field, that is where you get the trust and the confidence placed back in you that, you know, someone might say, well, you know, uh, I might not like what Sally says, but she's saying it because she believes it's in the essential best interests of our company. It's really remarkable in the book how um, both Albert Borla and Ken Chenault were not in their seats at their office at the moment the crisis really hit uh, on 9-11 or the, you know, uh, with the pandemic. Um, and they both seemed, and almost, it, it almost seemed by being removed from their office and from their people, they had a greater need in a sense, and they employed that time getting back to New York well to have something say when they when they when they got back and that that you know kind of um uh that kind of really got the companies the enterprise behind them um i guess my last question to you um sally is this ceo today is under a lot of pressure um to weigh in and have a view on just about every one of society's ills political and otherwise um, some of which have no direct bearing on the purpose of the company, um, even, even if these issues may touch many of the employees and so on and so forth uh, in, in a lot of ways. How do you navigate that very, very fraught world? And, and I think we can kind of bring it full circle to what you've talked about at the very beginning here, because you are promoting science and medicine in a political environment that doesn't necessarily always value um, value that. So. How do you counsel Albert to thread that needle? It's probably the, the most, uh, one of the most vexing questions that we have as corporate communicators. Um, and it is important to have a framework through which you think about these things. Um, in my book and on my LinkedIn page, I, I've published my framework. It's five questions. Um, you know, one is how does it relate to your purpose? Mine is human health. Uh, Pfizer's is breakthroughs that change patients' lives. So we have a uh, great agency to talk about health, but not to talk out on every topic. Second is how does it relate to our most important stakeholders for us? That's patients and our employees, but each entity has its own. How, these, how, do the issue, how does the issue at hand relate to our values, not to our politics? Pfizer has four values, courage, excellence, equity, and joy. Um, but, you know, it's not because we lean to the left or lean to the right, but rooted in values. Fourth, and, and this one I think is very important, is what are your options in any given moment? I think companies tend to react too quickly because a reporter called on deadline or somebody's circulating a petition that they need signed by close of business. These are big decisions, and we should take our time and measure out. and 
maybe be more proactive. Uh, write a letter from your CEO to colleagues and put it on your website. It's important to, to use your thoughtful voice in, in good ways. And then lastly, uh, what is the price of silence? Because there are a few issues, Kevin, uh, racism, violence in the schools, where companies uh, like mine and firms like yours just would never be silent, I know. So um, that's how I think about it. My thinking continues to evolve. Um, it's one of the things I really love uh, dialoguing with, with others in the field. So if, you, if anyone who's listening um, has a thought on this, I do read all my LinkedIn comments and I keep it, keep it real on that page. Well, Sally Sussman's new book is Breaking Through and it is out now from Harvard Business Review uh, Press. And I just have to say, it's a, it's a quick read, it's a great read. As a lay person, I probably learn more about what my colleagues do out here every day um, than I have from sitting with them all the time. And I, and I encourage them to read it for professionals in the space as well as for, uh, as well as for people in business in, in, in general. I think it's a really worthwhile read. So Sally, I really thank you for your time. Congratulations on, on the book and hitting the Wall Street Journal bestsellers list. Um, it's a great accomplishment. Um, thank you, thank you so much. Absolutely. And for our viewers, there's one last thing I want to mention today, and that is that saddens me greatly to announce the passing of my colleague and friend, uh, Jerry Hauer. Many of you who are longtime listeners to this show will remember that he was uh, one of those who built this program during the early days of the pandemic uh, as Taneo's public health official. He did so much to help our clients, our, our colleagues and employees, and our families to understand all of the signal from all of the noise um, that, was, uh, that was out there. He was a tireless advocate for the vaccine. He'd be thrilled that Sally was on here uh, with me today. Uh, and he was also a friend. And just as a reminder, he was the first director of New York City's Mayor's Office of Emergency Management. He was the acting assistant secretary in the United States Department of Health and Human Services Office of Public Health Emergency Preparedness. And he was the commissioner of the New York State Division of Homeland Security and Emergency Services. He was a close friend uh, and confidant of former New York City uh, Police Commissioner and my colleague, uh, Bill Bratton. Um, he was a great friend uh, and we're gonna miss him. So there you have it. I'm Kevin Kajiwara. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Taneo Insights. If you have any questions about any of the topics we cover, please reach out to us at taneoinsights at taneo.com. See you next time.